0: Welcome to Green and Red, Scrappy Politics for Scrappy People, a regular podcast on radical environmental and anti-capitalist politics. Brought to you by Bob Bazanka and Scott Park.
1: Welcome to the Silky Smooth Sounds of the Green and Red podcast. I am Scott Parkett, your co-host, in Berkeley, California today. And as always, I'm joined
2: by Uh, Bob Bezanko. Today, I'm in Niles, Ohio. And um, we always thank you to begin the show. And uh, if you're watching this on YouTube or, you know, hit the subscribe button, or if, you know, uh, listening to it on your favorite podcast platform, do the same, share, rate and review, all that kind of stuff. And if you have a few extra dollars and like what we're doing, we do have some overhead, so you can always uh, donate if you'd like. Yeah. And if you, um,
1: like like Bob said, if you like our work and you want to donate or become a patron, check out our website at greenredpodcast.org and hit the support support button. Uh, My words are jumbling a little bit today. Uh, And then if you, or if you want to become a patron, you go to our Patreon page, patreon.com backslash greenredpodcast and become a recurring donor. Uh, And so today we're going to be talking about the the history of capital waging war on radical workers. And we're gonna be joined with two guests. Um, We'll be talking about uh, some of their work that they've done on this. Um, Some of this focus will be on some of the, what the the state has done. And some of this will be on uh, what extrajudicial or vigilante uh, type groups have done. Um, And then also we uh, will probably also talk about private security, private interests as well. Um, And so to start, to start this off, just to do an intro, uh, we ha- we're we joined by uh, Professor Ahmed White. Uh, Professor White is the Nicholas Rosenbaum Professor of Law at the University of Colorado in- at Boulder, where he has taught labor and criminal law since 2000. Uh, he is the author of The Last Great Strike, Little Steel, The C- CIO, and the Struggle for Labor Rights in New Deal America. Uh, and then his current book, which will be out in the fall, is called Under the Iron Heel, The Wobblies and the Capitalist War on Radical Workers. Uh, welcome to Green and Red, Professor White. Thank you. And then we're also joined by Professor Chad Pearson, who teaches history at Collin College, a community college in Plano, Texas. He is the author of Reform or Repression, Organizing America's Anti-Union Movement. And he also has been an editor of Against Labor, How U.S. Employers Organize to Defeat Union Activism. Uh, And he has published in uh, many different media outlets, including Counterpunch, Jacobin, Labor History, and a number of others. And his book, which will also be out in the fall, is called "Capital's Terrorists, Klansmen, Lawmen, and Employers in the Long Nineteenth Century." Uh, Welcome to Green and Red, Professor Pearson. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. Yeah, Uh, and just to maybe kind of kick it off, um, kind of reading through your book and reading your articles, Professor White, um, we've seen. Um, it's, I found it interesting that there's this notion of law and order, which actually dates back to the 19th century. And then we also see that in some of the repression against the, the wobblies. And I'm just wondering if you we could maybe start off about talking about some of this like this notion of law and order and the roots that it has in the 19th and early 20th century and how it was used uh, as a narrative or, or ideological frame to you know, go after radical unions and, and other progressive forces.
3: Sure. So, you know, every society has a mandate to maintain order, and in the modern world, uh, the, the 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 central way—not the only way, but but the central way—the most apparently legitimate way to do that is through law. And there, there are ways in which that's done that are you know beyond any controversy. If some you know, murder is on a rampage, then we expect. We expect the law to deal with that. And we we hope that that will happen. We hope that there is some order in the world. It's labor's misfortune though, and uh, and radical labor's special misfortune, that it's suppression uh, in this country for well over a century has been thoroughly incorporated into this program of law and order. uh, Meaning that for one thing, the government has played through its legal system, uh, a very active role in suppressing labor uh, by that method, using law, using police, using legal prosecutions, imprisonment and so forth to accomplish these purposes. Um, At the same time though, this notion of law and order has also functioned ideologically as a way of justifying all kinds of repression of labor, including things that go beyond or that have gone well beyond uh, legitimate or what we would regard as legitimate or, or, or arguably legitimate legal process to include things like vigilantism or uh, extra legal actions or, um, or as, as some of the victims of this often call it, the kind of law, the law of the lawless um, used to suppress people uh, and, and to, to hold organized labor, again, especially radical workers uh, in place. So there's a very long history of this. And the, the one other thing I would say about it um, that, that makes it especially problematic for workers or has made it especially problematic for workers um, is the way it often unfolded as a kind of um, a, a trap uh, or a prison um, in the following way. Um, that workers in asserting their rights uh, often found themselves in a position where to play by the rules was to face certain defeat. Um, And at the same time, they often encountered situations where they were very explicitly provoked into acting in illegal ways. And either way, uh, what often happened was that workers resorted to um, illegal actions uh, sometimes violent actions, uh, that themselves provided um, a kind of incontestable justification for the use of state power or for that matter, vigilantism uh, to hold them in check. And that, that, that thing has kind of repeated itself time and time and time again uh, through the history of American labor. If you do nothing, you lose. If you respond in ways that either were or could be characterized as violent or disorderly, then you also lost because that triggered a, a response couched uh, as, um, as uh, an act of uh, an assertion of law and order. Yeah,
2: you know, I think in general, the left sees repression as a, as a function of the state, but it's more than that as, as both of you pointed out. And I know Chad in your recent work, you've talked a lot about that. There are also these kind of private forces that work and I just um I've done a little you know I actually my MA's in labor history so and I'm near Youngstown so I was you know I was looking some stuff up last night and this is later but in the 1930s Youngstown Sheet and Tube had its own militia with eight machine guns 369 rifles 190 shotguns 450 revolvers over 10,000 rounds of ammunition 109 gas guns and 3,000 rounds of gas ammunition so I just wonder if you wanted to talk a little bit about not just the state function and repression but you know especially I um in, your, in the introduction to your new book, Chad, you talk about this too, that it's bigger than that, that you have these, these terrorists that you call them. Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, you know, it's a provocative
0: title. And what I sought to do is to rescue the word terrorism from the Islamophobes. And to, you know, think about how, you know, these folks in, in positions of power, um, they control the narrative, um, they, they invoke the language of, of law and order, but really, they make the lives of, of ordinary people, you know, pretty pretty miserable, um, and they get away with it, right? They have what I call the enablers, right? And so, uh, you know, it's it's interesting to to pose a question. I mean, the police, many police departments emerge in urban centers, and they did the work for employers, right? Then you have groups like the Pinkertons, right, or or and other uh, you know security agencies, and what you often see, of course, is these 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 employers, these elites, getting their own hands dirty. Efficiently going in and, and breaking strikes, arresting people, uh, that kind of thing. So, um, and they get away with it, you know. That's that's the. Uh, there's there's a recent um, paper that I read uh, in um, a draft, and and the the authors of this paper said that there's a, you know, if you look at the press, there's all this coverage about labor violence, but they did a search on employer violence. It's not there. It's not there, you know. So 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 part of how they can invoke. This idea of law and order is because they control the narrative.
1: You know, I'm kind of, I'm kind of curious. A lot of uh, both of your works are, you know, focused on both state and extrajudicial uh, violence against labor. But you know, Chad and the actually, the I think it's the first chapter of your book where you actually talk about the Klan, um, which is a, a terrorist organization in post Reconstruction, uh, in Reconstruction uh, South, and. You, you make an argument that actually the Klan is also like a boss's association. I'm wondering if you could just like talk about that for a moment.
0: Certainly, certainly, I, I think. So when we, we think about race and, and race relations, the Klan, uh, there are all these civil rights groups who like to talk about hate, hate organizations, hate organizations. Well, I don't think hate as a as sort of a unit of analysis is appropriate here. I think it's better to think about exploitation because you know what did the Klan want? What sort of vision did they have, right? They wanted African-Americans to shut up and take it, to work the fields, to work, you know, to do nothing but work, not, you know, in, uh, get an education or a uh, vote or, you know, get involved in one of these, these union leagues. So the Klan itself, um, the leadership tended to be uh, elites, landowners, uh, merchants, lawyers, uh, and and they sought to force those former slaves who enjoyed that new freedom to get them back to the farms and back to the plantations. Um, And you can look at the the documentation. Now, researching the Klan or any of these groups is very difficult because they're hyper secretive. Um, But there are documents that very explicitly state, you know, you do your job, you do your work, we're not going to bother you. Right. Um, And so there's lots and lots of evidence. Now, it's an imperfect um, argument because there are um, cases of, say, labor competition that is, you know, uh, working class white folks, you know, chasing away uh, African-American laborers. But the leadership and most evidence that I have seen suggests that we can, we should really have a class analysis and, and to recognize that the folks at the top of society called the shots. They, you know, they're involved in politics. They're involved in, in vigilantism. So um, I think the the evidence is there to really support this notion that the Klan was sort of a a pre-industrial
2: employer's association. You know, you mentioned class analysis, which I think is something that I try to talk about too. And especially on the left, when you talk about the state, it tends to focus on things like police attacks on African-Americans, more recently attacks on immigrants. And one thing I'd like to point out is the ruling class kind of will destroy anybody whose interests, you know, who, who challenges its interest. And that will include and white workers and so the most sustained period of labor violence is really from like what around 1877 to the little steel strike you have that 60 years where it's really class war and i just wonder if both of you would want to say a little bit more about that because i think that's really kind of right now a big a big debate on the left an argument on the left right this idea of class versus whatever you want to call it wokeness or identity or whatever and i think earlier on did did workers themselves have a sense of of class consciousness and and of of acting as a class in response to the repression of of the state and these private actors?
3: Sure. I think think workers absolutely did. It was was something that couldn't be denied Uh, in that period you describe in in particular. Hundreds and hundreds of people were killed in these clashes, Uh, the the great majority of them workers, um, it, it was just something, again, that was completely, uh, completely undeniable. And uh, to connect that to your first uh, question, the first part of your question, I think it's crucial to understand the class functions of the modern state. And that is something that is at risk if uh, the discourse is, is so completely and utterly dominated by issues of, of race or gender and all that. That's important. We can all acknowledge that, but what has gotten to a significant degree, written out of the story about the state uh, and its functions in the modern world is this role in class repression. And one way you can see that um, is in the way we talked about the Constitution and civil liberties as they relate to labor repression. Uh, One thing I've seen very consistently in in my own work and a lot of work Uh, in this field that doesn't get a lot of attention is the way that our tolerance as a society for dissent on the part of workers and labor is almost entirely dependent on whether those workers are threatening anyone's interest or important values. Uh, If they're not, then it turns out the courts have a tendency to be quite tolerant. Uh, to extol the virtues of free speech and freedom of association and all of that. But the moment that those workers become threatening to the interest and values of powerful people, then those civil liberties yield. And it's not for nothing that that some of the more liberal champions of labor rights in uh, the 1920s and 1930s, like the La Follette uh, Committee that investigated uh, labor violence in the 1930s into the early 1940s were completely preoccupied with labor as a question of freedom of speech and freedom of association because they understood that. Yeah. I would add um, yeah.
0: just more broadly on the, the race versus class issue, which seems to um, never really go away. Um, there's this assumption in some circles that labor history is the history of white men and unions. And of course that's not true, right? I mean, the the, the history of labor is, is very diverse, gender-wise, race-wise, uh, sexual orientation-wise. And so, um, you know, I, uh, uh you know, if you look at power relations and you think about, you know, the the importance of biracial strikes, which, you know, there's not a whole lot of that hasn't really captured the popular imagination in the way, say, the 1619 project has. Right. Um, or, you know, another issue is sort of black elites, um, you know, Booker T. Washington. You know, there's a long time when there's a, a fair amount of scholarship about, you know, black elites and, and anti-unionism. Um, a lot of that, that stuff is, is not, um, so much in the, you know, discussed, uh, in, in, in the same way. Um, and I would also, you know, insist, you know, thinking about the, the, the clan, the, the clan, they wanted the African, African-American masses to, to labor, uh, on the farms, on the plantations and who they really disliked were these white teachers, right? They sought to drive them out, right? They, there was a place for African-Americans. There was no place for, you know, these, these, you know, white so- so-called carpetbaggers and whatnot. So, um, you know, this 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 issue race versus class is, isn't going away. I, I, I guess the best uh, way to respond is to, you know, put these things into context.
1: Thinking about these extrajudicial groups, what's the, clan, whether it's the Klan or the law and order committees or the citizens alliances. And, you know, you're talking about how, I mean, uh, you talk talked about how the elites are, actually lead some of the mobs, but mm-hmm. I'm also kind of wondering, how the elites were able to also, how the elite elites leveraged, you know, people who were more of like working class backgrounds, you know, around racial lines, it makes sense because they were able to play into like racism, but like when they were going after like the wobblies or like, you know, radi- white radicals, I'm just kind of curious about what the the sort of leverage was they used to convince them to go after that, after those entities.
0: One of the things that you see in the early 20th century are the development of these, um, Paradoxical-sounding anti-labor union unions, right? So these are, you know, it sounds oxymoronic, right? You've you've got a, you know, the the independent order of labor, the free labor association, right? And so they mobilize. They, being the elites, mobilize uh, uh, workers into these anti-union leagues. Now it's difficult to know how sincere the workers in these organizations were because there's a a problem with you know um, sources, you know, uh, uh, evidence. Um, so you know, there's, there's always been, um, you know, strike breakers, scabs and whatnot. Um, I think there are lots of different scenarios. There are cases where you have the strike breakers don't know they're heading to a, a strike and they get there and they're like, oh, you know, well, I'm already here. I guess I got to do it. Um, there are others who, who turn around. Um, there are others who sort of, you know, might be true believers in, you know, uh, anti-union uh, ideas. So it's, it's hard to kind of generalize. But what I say you know, in my book, um, for the most part, we're looking at at elites. They're the ones who are engaged in the kidnapping raids. They're the ones who are engaged in the, the drive out campaigns, uh, that sort of thing. And h- how many sort of working class people are are in these organizations? Um, hard to say, but my sense is not a whole lot.
3: Another important way that 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 this kind of um, this opposition to workers was 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 generated and rationalized was um, was was through the the rhetoric and the politics of patriotism um, and militarism. Um, So I think it's important not to focus too much on the so-called Red Scare periods, the first one in uh, 1919, 1920, and then the Little Red Scare in the late 1930s the second red scare so-called in the 40s and 50s, because there was plenty of repression in between those periods. But those are important nonetheless, because they emphasize exactly the way that, that, that patriotism and militarism and uh, issues of state security could be used to mobilize uh, people, that, that this is a real threat. And you combine that with the politics of race, uh, the politics of ethnic competition and tension and conflict, and uh, it was you know, a pretty effective formula uh, for mobilizing people against uh, workers. Not for nothing was the American Legion, for instance, almost from its inception, a, a very uh, active force in, uh, in organizing uh, anti-labor violence, including, for instance, the so-called uh, Centralia Massacre in, in November of 1919, uh, 19, um, where, um, where um, um, Wobbly was, 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 uh, was lynched after, um, after an attack on their Union Hall and that was spearheaded by a group of um, American uh, engineers.
0: I think it's such an excellent point and just the uh, open shop principle, the idea that you don't need to be a member of a union to, to work in a workplace, right? This is a sort of powerful ideological uh, uh, campaign. Um, in the era just after World War I, the employers and their allies referred to it as the American plan. The American plan, right? That is that you're you're equating America, you know, uh, the open shop system of industrial relations with, with 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 patriotism, right? And so they're very explicit on on that
2: issue. Something you brought up earlier, and I want to kind of think it's important um, <clears throat> because in general, and if you read, you know, like Howard Zinn's book, which is wonderful, but I think somewhat romantic, um, the the focus tends to be on these violent acts, these these terrorist acts, but. The ruling class has kind of countless strategies it can use, and you mentioned earlier things like the media and the courts. I just wonder if you could talk a little bit more about that, because you know, if you look at American protest history, it's really not as violent as many other places, especially you know on on the side of labor and the left. And and the ruling class, in many ways, doesn't have to, right? It it can and it will, and in eighteen seventy-seven, it did in eighteen eighty-six, and so on. But It has other strategies, that's countless strategies. Do you want to talk a little about that? Because I think that's really important in understanding the way, you know, oligarchic power works.
0: Um, Yeah, no, I think, um, I mean, you know, Ahmed could probably speak uh, to this with greater detail, but I mean, in terms of injunctions, right? You have tons and tons of injunctions that stop uh, uh, workers from protesting. Um, in, in terms of the media, I mean, I mentioned you know the newspapers had plenty of coverage of labor violence, but didn't cover uh, employer violence. And then you have novels, right? You know, doing my research, there are all these anti-labor novels uh, and, and, and novelists who are able to shape the consciousness of, of people about uh, about labor. So, so why, why, if you have you know this infrastructure, right? You've got you've got the press, you've got the uh, the courts, you've got the politicians. Why, you know? engage in direct combat. And I think because they could, and it might be, might be more efficient, right? You know, I tell a story about this guy, Hugo Donzelman, there's a, a big strike in in um, in Cheyenne, Wyoming. And uh, he brags, he says, you know what, uh, did we wait for the injunction law? Not us. We went down there, 460 of us with our guns. And we told those workers, step aside, and they stuck stepped aside, right? Um, and, you know, this, this is the you know, these are powerful people, right? They're, they're, they're employers, they're, they're legal experts. And, um, you know, he was the first um, uh, attorney general of uh, of Wyoming, this guy, right? So he could have got an injunction, right? But he just goes down there with his guns, right? And, and, uh, uh, and so I, I think maybe they wanna, you know, flex their muscles. Um, maybe they enjoy the, the adrenaline rush of direct combat. Some of these people were involved in Indian war. Some of these people were involved in the civil war. You know, there's the, the camaraderie of, of those earlier battles that uh, they might want to kind of relive. You know, it's it's uh, it's hard to say for sure, but, you know, they've got they've got the institutions, they've got the media, and then they also like to get their, their hands dirty.
1: It's a bit like some of these Republican politicians who went to the Capitol, right? It's right. what that made me think of. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and, you,
3: you know, you, you also have to ask the question, what do we mean by violence? You know, there's a lot of workers back then talked about the violence of the master class in a way that encompassed uh, not only overt violence, uh, the way we were talking about it a minute ago, but the implicit violence of arresting people, of, um, of locking them up in local jails, of putting them in prison uh, and all of that, which was, which was ubiquitous. I mean, uh, several thousand people were put in prison, um, leftists of one sort or, or another between Um, say 1877 and 1937 and countless tens of thousands were thrown in jail. Uh, You'll never get um, a reliable estimate of that number because it was just so common to arrest people, charge them with vagrancy or disorderly conduct or no particular charge at all. You see these old police records (laughs) and blotters, general suspicion or something like that. And, you know, that's a kind of violence in its own right that I think has been understudied uh, in, in the literature, when, when you talk about taking someone, um, stripping them naked, um, sub- subjecting them to all these indignities, and then locking them up for it might be three days, it might be 10 days, it might be uh, three months um, in some god awful jail somewhere, uh, incommunicado, s- serving them bad food, subjecting them to the potential and sometimes the reality of sexual assault or whatever, you know, all these bad things that thin as now could happen to people who are locked up in jail, has enormous deterrent effect that I think we can't deny. That's what jails are for, to deter people uh, from engaging in bad behavior. And it is one thing if you're deterring them from, again, committing murder or or stealing someone's property or uh, assaulting them for no good reason. But it's quite another thing when that machinery of deterrence is deterring workers from developing and, and asserting a class consciousness
2: your um, new work is is focusing i think on the iww a lot and and they kind of stand out um, you know the history of labor is often kind of couched in terms of like business unionism and gompers and afl and all that the wobblies are very different and and you know what was was that based on kind of kind of an ideology or the realities of you know lumber camps and mining you know mines and things like that and why was there such a, a gap between them and, and much of, of the other rest of labor? You know, most labor kind of stays away from them. Uh, obviously, the FFL is a craft union. They just want to, you know, hire, you know, they want more money. So what, what's the IWW's role in this? Because I think they're very important in, um, in, in kind of it. And, and also to kind of follow up, if you want to follow up on that, They also lead to uh, a a real shift and kind of a crackdown in terms of the law. So you see kind of a new body of labor law emerge because of uh, groups like the Wobblies.
3: Yeah, so the the thing that, that strikes me most about the Wobblies and their experience was how true they were to their belief that the state and its legal system was their implacable enemy. Um, they brooked, I won't say no compromise, but almost no compromises. They never did do the things that some other prominent representatives of the American left did, and that is uh, to resort to a kind of opportunism uh, regarding the state that, that you saw in, uh, with respect to the Communist Party and the Popular Front period, for instance, and its alliances with the New Deal state and the CIO and all of that. Um, the Wobblies never, never really did do that, and you know there are probably a number of reasons for that, To beginning with the demographics of the organization. It was mainly, not entirely, but mainly composed of people on the margins, um, people who back in the teens and 20s couldn't vote anyway, given the realities of voting laws and their lack of permanent residency and all of that, um, didn't have many of them a permanent home, um, didn't, weren't established in a community, and maybe we're in a position for those reasons to better understand the state and see for what it was. Uh, and that, of course, uh, brought down upon them this the most vicious of repression. Uh, what I, one of the things I say in my book is that uh, they, the one thing they proved above all else by their own subjugation, was the essential truth of the philosophy they embraced from the outset. Um, If they they accomplished anything, it was to prove that they were fundamentally right about the state, about the capitalist state and what it was bound to do to people like them, because it did. Um, And I I think in some ways, and and I don't mean to belittle the suffering these people, endured, which I I find quite extraordinary, the courage they showed in the face of this. But the one thing they did was to show by their own experience that they were right about what the state was. And I don't say that to say that, therefore, their approach here was necessarily the correct one, uh, that they were incontestably right about how to confront capitalism, how to organize workers successfully. That's, that's, That's a different issue, a more complicated issue but they proved what the state was.
2: Chad, do you want to say a few things about the kind of distinctions within labor also, or whatever, if you had something oh, else? You, you know, I
0: just, I, I want to pick up on something that Ahmed yeah. said, if you don't mind, about uh, the incarceration. Um, I, I think you're absolutely right about the the role, the, the repressive role of incarceration. But on the other hand, right, if we, when you think about unions like the Western Federation of Minors, right, they were brought together, right, they formed this union, at least in part, because they were in these horrible bullpens in uh northern idaho right and they 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 plotted they planned together and and so they out of the that that repression they were able to to um to to, to unite and, and and build something uh else and you know we could also talk about say uh, eugene debs right his incarceration in Pullman, he read marx right and that helped um you know enhance his sort of um, understanding but i I'm, I'm a uh, on the question of the, the wobblies i'm very much in agreement with with ahmed white i think that's that's a fantastic analysis and that is that that they understood that the capitalists and the workers did not have the same interests. And uh, their experiences illustrated that um, very dramatically.
1: I'd be kind of curious, your thoughts on you know, you know, that, there's like a model of like state oppression where we see the criminal cynicism laws, and there's the, the model where we see the extrajudicial violence, vigilante violence, but then there's also this element, I think around like progressive forces as it was called then, or progressives, Progressivism, as it was called then, we, I call it liberalism today, which actually also, you know, did this sort of softer repression, this watering down of messaging, this compromise um, versus like a more no-compromise position. I'm just wondering your thoughts on that.
0: Um, on the question of, of liberalism, liberals and uh, industrial relations at this time, I think uh, that um, uh, that that liberals, progressives, uh, were very much in support of of employers and accepted the logic of the the open shop principle. That is the idea that workers should have the freedom to not join uh, a union. And and, and we see this uh, with people like uh, Louis Brandeis, um, Theodore Roosevelt. um, And and this is one thing that that drives me nuts. um, And that is that there's a a failure to acknowledge in in academic circles, the extent to which these people, Brandeis, uh, Roosevelt and others, really um, help facilitate the uh, the repression uh, of, of, of workers, but of course, they they cloak their their language in, in you know, sort of progressivism, and, and Ahmed's written a, a wonderful article looking at this in, in the 1920s and beyond um, that, uh, you know, speaks to this, what do you call it, the hard edge of, of progressivism?
3: Yeah, 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 you're, you're too kind, because you I think your, your earlier work, your book on this was, I think, fantastic and extremely influential and extremely important, and I, I think that's, I think that's a crucial point about progressives and, and progressivism who and the progressives by the way were very much behind the enactment of criminal syndicalism laws of the 1917 espionage act uh something in the news today with with the, the potentially impending extradition of julian assange uh, to face charges under that statute they, they were they were they were quite inclined many of them anyway as contradictory movement and and some of them uh, some of them were stronger on the question of civil liberties and the rights of uh, of dissent than others but but many of them were very much at the center of um of the move to criminalize radicalism at the same time that um again i think chad's absolutely right that they were also uh, and, and, and your question, um, Scott, is right in, pre- in presuming this, they were also uh, very adept at uh, incorporating this with or alongside a softer forms of control of labor that culminated in you know, the 1935 uh, Wagner Act, the National Labor Relations Act um, that, um, that in many ways was a kind of proved to be a kind of fist in the velvet glove uh, for workers.
1: You are listening to the silky smooth sounds of the green and red podcast.
2: And as always, we thank you for listening to us. Uh, We really appreciate it. And then as always, uh, we would like to ask you to subscribe uh, to us on whatever format you listen to, whether it be on podcast or on our YouTube channel. Um, You can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We are on Linktree slash green and red podcast. And we now also have postcards. And if you have a coffee house or a library or a bookstore or someplace like that in your area, that might be uh, a great spot to put some of these. Just ask us and we will send them to you free of charge to spread the word about the Green Red podcast. And you
1: can email us at greenredpodcast@gmail at Gmail to get uh, a, a packet of your of your postcards. Uh, and then if you really like us, you can uh donate and you know we we are very happy to get the donation and have the small base of small donors that we have uh and so you can either become a patron at patreon.com backslash green red podcast or you can make a one-time donation at green and red podcast.org and just hit that support button it's also on the postcards uh and so uh you know thanks for listening and enjoy the show
2: Um, This this is a little bit of an academic question, and I know Chad, you and I have talked about this, but, you know, long ago when I was in grad school, I read like Coco and Weinstein and Martin Sklar about um, the role of the state and kind of creating reform in order to contain groups like radical labor. And um, I don't think anybody is, do do people read that anymore? I, I don't know if they're really even aware of it, but I just wondered if you think that still has value to kind of understand the the need for stability and harmony and capital and how that leads to or can lead to reform I mean just the other day the Republican Party is creating kind of an alternative to the Chamber of Commerce because the Chamber of Commerce is now too woke and too liberal for them so
0: <laughs> right I, I I think that there is it is still value there I think uh, from a, a scholarly perspective if you look at the the Academy um, most folks were in privileged academic positions uh, downplay that stuff, denounce it, and, yeah. and I think a lot of it is has to do with this um, focus on, you know, these s- former labor historians become political historians, and they, um, they're so uh, interested in the rise of the right and the, the tensions between Democrats and Republicans and sort of official politics, and so they, uh, they see that, that earlier, you know, uh, new left uh, interpretations as, you know, not... Uh, as passe and, and not uh, worth, worth uh, engaging with. But I, I, I think there's still, um, still value there, right? I mean, I, I think that if you look at the role of, of liberals in official positions, they are very much um, involved in, uh, in, in anti-radical efforts and, and st- you know, efforts to stabilize things and um, serve, ultimately serve the interests of, of the ruling class.
3: Well certainly. And, and, and of course, I teach in uh law school, uh, where the where the privilege where privilege abounds, and that's reflected in uh I think the general attitudes of most law professors. They identify uh they identify upwards um with um with uh with the elite, and in some respects they are themselves part of the elite. Um things are changing a little bit, I think, not so much among the professoriate, but uh, I see a change among the students. And, and I think that reflects um, maybe the sort of declining ability of the political system and the legal order to legitimate themselves. Um, and that I think is related to the fact that we got a lot of people in, all, at all levels of academia now, students, I mean, who face, uh, declining uh, opportunities, um, in increasing costs and burdens, and it's putting them in a different position in the world. And that's not the only way to gain a consciousness about these things, but it it certainly often nudges uh, people to think differently about uh, the world. Um, and it's in, in insofar as it's it's things are very different today than they were, say, in two thousand. Um, I, I think there is maybe a renewed relevance for the kinds of works um, you mentioned. Um, and, and of course, for the likes of us, they, they, their relevance has never, uh, has never really diminished, but. we'll see. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Very okay. popular on the Green and Red podcast. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I'll say that.
3: That's
2: one of our key themes is to go after liberals. So but kind of to follow up on that and to kind of specifically talk to your, your uh, 2016 book, um, the Wagner Act and FDR kind of seeing the high points in, in, in labor history in a lot of ways. But that was kind of temporal, wasn't it? Like you have this brief flurry, uh, FDR wants labor votes, labor contributes heavily to his campaign. But after that, you know, um, he kind of steps back. And so I think that's important as well, because, you know, especially in the last few years, like Biden, remember, tried to affect the FDR thing, Obama tried to pretend he was the new FDR. But even FDR wasn't really FDR, was he? <laughs>
3: no, no, he absolutely was not. And, and, and that was made tragically evident in the Little Steel strike uh, when, you know, 18 or so, 16 or 18 workers were killed uh, in the course of this, this, this vicious and bloody strike that was completely, by the terms of the Wagner Act, which was enacted a couple of years before the strike occurred, um, unlawfully provoked by these powerful steel companies. Uh, they flouted their obligations under the Wagner Act, um, knowing that, intending that this would provoke a strike, and then they brought to bear the kind of weaponry that you mentioned uh, Youngstown Sheet and Tube had on hand. The other companies had similar stockpiles, and they killed all these people, or they, they relied on the, the National Guard or local police to do their bidding for them, and in the midst of all of this, um, you know, the CIO fairly begged the Roosevelt administration to intervene on their behalf. Francis Perkins and Roosevelt himself, and the New Deal governors in the key states, uh, Martin Davy in Ohio, uh, playing a lead role in this regard, and they, they, for the most part, got nothing. In fact, Roosevelt uh, quite famously pronounced this a plague on both your houses. Uh, allowing the steelworkers organizing steelworkers organized committee of the CIO to lose that strike uh, and lose it decisively, um, and that you know again uh, it's not the only evidence of where uh, Roosevelt and his administration stood on labor rights. How opp- speak of opportunism? How opportunistic they were uh, relative to uh, New Deal labor. Uh, it's not the only evidence of that, but, but you would look hard to find clear evidence of where the Roosevelt administration uh, stood uh, with, with respect to organized um, organized labor.
2: And wasn't the AFL also kind of in, in some ways kind of challenging? I mean, in, in some ways, didn't the AFL and the NLRB work in hand, hand in hand to kind of contain the CIO and, and more radical kind of labor elements?
3: Yes, yeah, so of course, the, the AFL is, was a bit a rival of the CIO yeah. in, that, in that period and did whatever it could to undermine the CIO and use the government to that end. The story with the NLRB is an interesting one. Um, it's, you know, the agency still exists. Uh, back then it was led by a three member board and now it's five members. Those three members are really interesting because two of them were possibly fellow travelers um, certainly uh, strongly on the left. And the third guy was the chair of the board when the Little Steel Strike occurred, um, was a conservative guy, but an interesting kind of conservative of the sort you don't see much anymore. He, he strongly, strongly sympathized with organized labor in this context, and he took no guff from these employers. Well, you know what happened to them? Within a few years, they had all been replaced uh, by more compliant board members um, who changed the character of the board, and that went in line with the change in the New Deal. New Deal never was, as we all know, um, a a Marxist front in the way that that many uh, liberals and conservatives back then and even today argue, but it was peppered with people who were, again, fellow traveler types and so forth. And uh, one thing, again, that happened with the NLRB and happened to other agencies was that they were purged uh, of these folks and uh, you know Roosevelt was fine uh, was fine with that as were other prominent new dealers and the end result was that by the 19 early 1940s the NLRB was uh, was fairly active in suppressing labor rights uh, particularly when they were asserted and asserted in militant ways by uh, by explicitly leftist unions. So there's a, you know, there's basically a story here that we all think about Taft-Hartley as being this sort of, this revolutionary attack from the right <laughs> on, um, on the, the edifice of New Deal, of, of liberal, prog- super-progressive New Deal labor law. Well, the problem with that story is that it's only partly true because a lot of the things that Taft-Hartley did codify had already been done administratively. By the NLRB or by the courts,
0: you know, on the question of the um, Memorial Day massacre, I mean, there's really no accountability for these cops who who slaughtered these people, right? I mean, it's you know, uh, so many today, you know, many you know liberals, even some leftists, will look back at the 1930s and sort of pepper over, you know, the. Uh, Memorial Day massacre, or, you know, ignore the Smith Act, which is also, you know, uh, signed by Roosevelt. Right. I mean, there, there's, you know, I don't want to sound sort of ultra left here, but there's really some some anti labor things going on at, at that time. And so it's
2: OK to be ultra lefty. Right? Yeah, <laughs> Actually, I'm glad you brought that up because and this is delicate and I always kind of get somebody pissed off at me. But when people talk at the police today attacking immigrants or attacking African-Americans, which is horrific, right? But I would say, yeah, but they'll go after anybody who gets in their way. And I always mention the Memorial Day Massacre or just the labor wars. And I think that, you know, the left has to understand that, you know, white privilege, even white privilege has its limits. Like if you're out striking, they'll shoot you. And I mean, I've talked to people here long ago who were veterans at a little steel strike at Youngstown who said, you know, one guy said an 18 year old national kid in the National Guard was shaking and holding a rifle at him. And it terrified him, you know. Um, But I think that also gets to the one of the big questions on the left is like, why isn't there more of a radical tradition in the US? Why is there no socialism? Why was there never a labor party? And I think when you call capitals agents terrorists, I think that speaks to that. But do you want to kind of like we're going for the big the big question here? Why? Why? You know, you did have movements. You had the the IWW. You had other labor unions. You had uh, the Germans at Haymarket. You had the Italian anarchists. But that's always kind of a a fairly minor part of the overall, you know, kind of direction of labor. So why, why isn't there socialism in America, Chad? Uh, Well, you know, I mean, it's, uh, yeah, there you go. (laughs)
0: Um, You know, I, I, uh, I I think a combination of repression, co-optation, you know, thinking sort of, sort of broadly. um, One thing we we didn't talk so much about is um, the role of blacklists. Right, uh, particularly in the 1880s and 1890s, um, these were these really terrified workers, right? I mean, you have thousands of people who are who are blacklisted and unable to get jobs, and you know, really living in in impoverished uh, uh, conditions. Um, it's scary, you know. Ahmed brought up the incarceration. I mean, that's that's huge. Um, and and so, you know, what I try to show in my book is that you know, you have the, you might have these sort of spectacular strikes, and then they. The ruling class, with their their enablers, um, come come at these people really hard, uh, and you can't uh, you can't dismiss that, right? I mean, I think that's that's uh, that's pretty scary. Even even soft forms of of repression, right? It's like blacklisting, book burning, you know, these things uh, these things matter.
2: Uh, yeah, someone in my family was a president of a steel mill that went on strike in the eighties or early nineties, and that mill shut down. You know, it was taken over by kind of Bain Capital or somebody. It took him about two years to find a job locally because everybody knew he had been the, the leader, you know, of that strike uh, m- many um, years earlier. So that that kind of stuff clearly is still there. Um, you know, uh, when we mentioned, when we interviewed Linda a long time ago, uh, one thing that he was really uh, felt strongly about was that uh, in the 30s, these unions started making contracts where they kind of put in, no, they agreed to no strike clauses in exchange for collective bargaining. And, you know, that's often portrayed as like kind of a, a pro-labor development. But in fact, I just wonder what you thought of that as well, like the way even the CIO negotiated, you know, in the thirties. Uh,
0: well, I guess, you know, what you're doing is you're, 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 uh, you've got stewards who are not uh, connected to uh, the rank and file and you've got, the, you know, these, these unions become more, more bureaucratic and, and that uh, kind of de-radical, depoliticizes uh, the labor movement uh, quite a bit, I think, you know, and so, um, there is a case to be made for, you know, a labor movement before the New Deal, right? Which is, you know, yes, lots tons of, of, of repression, but it's also, uh, you know, more participatory, you know, um, good examples of, of rank and file activism, that kind of thing. So, yeah,
3: yeah, and you know, you're, there's of course the old story about the bureaucratization of the labor movement and 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 the professionalization of it. Um, that that when you you create a, a movement led by professional people, they, they tend to do what professionals do and that's to embrace the kinds of values and institutional responses that are inherent in professional life. That means lawyers, that means contracts, that means playing by the rules, that means all of that. And so it, it seems quite natural that, uh, that this is the course that the labor movement um, has, has taken. And not say it was inevitable, but, but that, that it seems a natural outcome of the new deal order uh as as it emerged that that's what we would kind of be stuck with and i I agree with chad there are a lot of factors here there's there's the 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 kind of rise of consumer society and the way that sort of lays hold to people and uh and and the way it supports a kind of bread and butter approach to unionism uh and all of that there's the the decline of, of fraternal orders and things like that that were kind of a an underpinning of labor organizing, of, of immigrant ties to or other radical traditions you mentioned, a collectivist and that sort of thing. So There's a lot going on there, but I, I would agree with Chad that at the forefront here, or some of, or um, or some of these, uh, uh, some of these realities. Uh,
0: and, and and the uh, you know then you have labor leaders who you know, like Sidney Hillman, who say, you know what, we're gonna, we're gonna support the Democratic Party, we're not gonna mess around with any kind of third party, that sort of thing, which, which I think uh, uh, organized labor still suffers from that, frankly, right? I mean, this, this dependence on the Democratic Party, I mean, what, uh, you know, year after year, I mean, you know, you, you, you know density rates uh, continue to go down, you know, politicians will promise all sorts of things, you know, I mean, uh, I think union density went down faster under uh, Obama than it did under, um, under uh, baby Bush. Uh, so, you
2: know, it's uh, reminds me of Lucy in the football, right? The, mm-hmm. the Democratic Party and labor thinks that they're going to hold it and they fall on their ass again. So, um, <laughs> yeah. you well, know, I- uh, there's and when I teach, I actually teach a class in kind of protest, history a or whatever you want to call it. And there's clearly, I think, a, a decline in, in labor militancy after Little Steel. And, and, the, the, and I'm just curious what you think of this. But the two kind of main factors to me are the red scare but also military Keynesianism, because I think there is generally just kind of this, this, um, you know, kind of increase in standard of living. I mean, like if guys in Youngstown, you know, made good money; they could buy a house, they could send their kid to college, they could take a vacation, until you know, 1978 or something like that. But I just wonder, like, what you think accounted for. That change, you know, part of it I think you brought up was the the kind of allegiance to the Democratic Party, which in the long term, and and I know Scott wants, after I'm done, Scott wants to talk about that a little bit, contemporary politics and neoliberalism, but what do you think accounted for kind of that shift after kind of the little steel period, World War II?
3: Well, you, you put your finger on it with military Keynesianism, military history more broadly. You know, we forget often the United States emerged from the Second World War, the not just a preeminent industrial power in the world, but I think American manufacturing accounted for half the uh, output in the world. And so that made it feasible to do what was done in the two decades or so after the war, which was to you know, to fund this settlement between a good fraction of the American working class and very powerful, highly subsidized, in some ways sort of semi-nationalized uh, American corporations. And it was it was great, as, as long as it lasted, great in a sense, mm-hmm. in supporting the, the rise of, of uh, you know, untold millions of people out of these very marginal existences into something approaching middle-class comfort. And I, I don't mean to denigrate that at all, That's very significant to people who, uh, who were impoverished to, to find some material comfort in life. But it, you know, it was employed by the big unions as a kind of carrot um, in co-opting people and blunting militancy. And again, it lasted as long as it lasted and then until the 1970s, 1980s, it all starts to unwind in the face of things like international competition and inflation, something familiar to us now again. Um, and, you know, as we know, as but is often forgotten that was met that unwinding in the 70s by a great tide of labor protest. Uh, that workers didn't take it lying down, but it came to naught uh, in part because of the kind of leadership that they got, in part because the labor movement by then was in this, as Mike Davis, you know, sort of famously put it, in a, in a locked in this barren marriage with a Democratic Party that had less and less use for the labor constituency anyway. Um, and so out of that emerge what we have today, as, as Chad noted earlier, these abysmally low union density rates um, in a context where the labor movement's still funneling hundreds of millions of dollars to the Democratic Party. And they're sort of you know this this furtive hope that at some point some person's going to be elected <laughs> who is somehow going to do what's never been done before, going to overturn Taft Hartley, going to do all this other enact the proag the FCA, whatever it is, <laughs> that's going to somehow happen. So what hasn't happened for getting on eighty years now, seventy something years is, is one day it's going to happen. Sort of waiting for government a moment is going to come and it just and it just hasn't.
2: I know Scott, you had. Uh, I've been monopolizing. I could talk for like five hours with you guys about this because it's really fascinating and it's <laughs> something. So, but I, I, don't, I, I don't I do have one last question after Scott. So, yeah.
1: yeah, my my question is just around kind of more current current events. I, I my my day job is I, I work in the environmental sector and working a lot of organizing and movement organizing sectors, and so thinking about the criminal syndicalism laws against the wobblies, but then also the extraditional forces It's like, you know, we're seeing like in, the environmental world, we're seeing like after standing rock, we're seeing lots of anti-pipeline protest bills in, in many States. Uh, and we're also seeing, you know, federal prosecutions and state prosecutions of people who were involved in the 2020 uprising. We're actually having a show in a couple in, next week about with someone who does legal support for those folks. And so we have this sort of like, state at least state level not quite federal but like state level repression and then we also have you know very much in the news particularly right now around the january 6 hearings we have you know the, these extrajudicial groups the proud boys and the oath keepers And i'm just wondering if both of you could comment a little bit on just like how you see you know this period 100 years ago further back um you know how it parallels with what's going on today
0: so if I may, um, I think, uh, you know, January 6th is a, a good example of you know, you've got, you know, mostly fairly privileged, you know, business owners, uh, CEOs, you know, uh, engaging in this, this direct campaign. And I, I sort of drew some parallels there with the, uh, you know, earlier folks. Of course, this wasn't an anti-labor uh, movement, but certainly these people probably don't like labor. You know, they they they, they, they believe in racial and, and, and class hierarchies. Um, tend to be pretty pretty privileged you know they they didn't have many enablers and positions of power but they you know um they certainly felt confident uh doing this right when they went in they were asking the cops to join us they certainly like the cops you know they um they felt uh, entitled and and even you know some of these folks who were, who were arrested like why are you treating me like a black person right i mean they kind of they couldn't they couldn't understand you know um but uh you know so it, it gives you a sense of their are sort of a. Uh, entitlement, but I mean, you look at some of these oath keepers and and um, the Proud Boys. I mean, they're you know upper middle class folks living in McMansions. You know, they're uh, um, this is not you know there's there's a tendency I think to say you know you know all these like reactionary Archie Bunker types you know, but these are you know um, fairly privileged folks who who do a lot of harm and uh, feel entitled and, and sometimes get away with it.
1: Bob, Bob
2: calls them the Lumpen oligarchy.
3: yeah, <laughs> well put.
2: Like Mike, Mike Lindell is the head of that. So. <laughs>
3: You know, and one of the the ironies there, which kind of parallels what I said earlier about the dilemma labor faces with violence, um, is, and and in saying this, I don't mean to overemphasize the importance of court decisions, but one of the ironies here is that a casualty of January 6th um, may be the legal protections that people on the left, that we all as Americans enjoy, Uh, such as they are, the constitutional protections we we enjoy now, unlike in the early 20th century, from being prosecuted for acts of um, rebellion that aren't violent or imminently violent. So you hear a lot of talk now about Brandenburg versus Ohio, the 1969 U.S. Supreme Court decision um, that concerned the Ohio criminal syndicalism law. Now, the, the defendant in that case was some some, some pathetic young, I think it was a young guy, Klansman, who, um, v- who filmed himself, you know, berated black folks and Jews and all this stuff. But the Supreme Court finally in that case um, gave some real teeth to the clear and present danger test um, that had been devised decades earlier. But up until that point had done as much to justify prosecuting Wobblies and communists as it did to limit the prosecution of Wobblies and communists. And there's, there's a wonderful irony there. The Supreme Court was under the leadership of Earl Warren. Uh, mm-hmm. Earl Warren in 1920, when he was a, a new um, uh, district attorney in Alameda County, Oakland, he said on his first day on the job, he prosecuted a criminal syndicalism case a case in a guy named John C. Taylor, who was a former Wobbly and a founder of the Communist Labor Party. And he he claimed, oh, I didn't do very much in the case. That's not clear at all. But regardless, here you go. Fast forward to 1969, and Earl Warren leads the court in saying, look, we can't do this anymore. There has to be a robust test uh, uh, of, of the interest of the state before the state prosecutes people for advocating uh, militant things. That precedent is very much at risk today, in part because many liberal jurists and political commentators don't like it. And I can tell you the reason they don't like it isn't limited to uh, the potential that it creates for difficulty in prosecuting the January 6th rioters, but is much more comprehensive than that. And it goes to the point that we all in different ways made earlier or observed earlier about the position of progressives, today's liberals, when it comes to any kind of radicalism. Uh,
2: Another kind of contemporary question, Um, for what, about a year or so now, we've seen pretty good run of success among like Starbucks and Amazon workers but we're talking often, you know, 15, 20 employees. It's not like steel workers and auto workers where you had hundreds of thousands, right? Um, just wondered, you know, kind of what you thought of that. I mean, it's, it's obviously not a bad thing, but does it have any larger meaning or give us hope?
0: I think the um, it's pretty inspiring. I mean, they the first uh, Starbucks in North Texas, the uh, literally, you know, a few buildings down from me. And so I go in there and, you know, uh, order my drink and say Union Strong and all of that. Um, I think we're up to about 150 or so. Um, But here's the problem, of course, right? Uh, Winning a union doesn't mean, you know, you still have to go through the negotiation process. And so they are um, uh, dragging their feet, uh, both Amazon and Starbucks. And frankly, things are gonna have to escalate. Um, They are, there are some strike actions. I think there's going to have to be more of that. You know, easy for me to say from the sidelines, but um, you're going to have to have that kind of confrontation because I don't see the, uh, I mean, the NLRB is you know better under Biden certainly, but uh, I don't think, um, you know, the, the they'll just the, these 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 bosses will continue to, to drag their feet, and and uh, we need uh, we need folks to to step up and and uh, really uh, take these places on.
3: I think
1: Schultz, the CEO of Starbucks, last week said that he would never negotiate with the yeah. unions.
3: And and you know, I think I completely agree with Chad. I think the the foot dragging works to the employer's advantages advantage, and and the law in many ways supports that. Uh, time is on their side. Uh, the law also limits the kind of militancy that these uh, these workers can engage in. It, it, it limits their their uh, their potential to mobilize. Um, Kind of solidarity-based actions in support of themselves, uh, in support of their, their efforts here, um, they're in a tough position and um, they're going to need the kind of fortitude uh, that has up until now, since the post-war, in, through the post-war period, been sorely lacking in the labor movement. I guess it's easy for easy for me to say, I'm not out there, I don't work at Starbucks, uh, I'm not likely going to get arrested on a, on a picket line. Um, uh, in front of a Starbucks, um, but they're gonna need that kind of militancy and fortitude and it, it, it may put them in violation of the law. And that's not a small thing. And I also agree with, with you, Bob, you put your finger on it again, that it's gonna be tough to rebuild a labor movement 10 or 15 workers at a time. Uh, that's something else that's conditioned by the law uh, in a way it limits your ability to organize across uh, an entire employer like Starbucks, let alone a whole industry uh, anymore. And so that's, that's going to be tough. And it's, it'll be tough in the face of government policies, uh, including um, a potential recession, um, one rooted in, uh, in monetary policies designed to tame inflation. But we'll see. I mean, I, 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 I wish them the best. And I do admire, um, admire what's been happening in a lot of these workplaces of late. What one thing that's
0: that's interesting, I think that's an excellent point, Ahmed. Um, uh, Schultz's comment, you know, we will never negotiate with them. I mean, that's kind of telling, right? I mean, that's you know, because because up to that point, I think he was saying, you know, oh yeah, well, you know, the, the workers, if they want to do this, you know, we don't think it's a good idea. But now he's coming, he's just he's saying the uh the 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 secret part, you know, in, in, in public, right? And and so that's and and unions in the you know among the public are um have a high degree of support, right? More so than, uh, uh, you know, in, in previous times. So there are things on our side, um, what this will look like, I don't know, but uh, you know,
2: um, we'll, we'll have to see. Yeah, I've got about 18 more questions. So I'm gonna, um, I think uh, union um, acceptance, is it the highest it's been in like 40 years? It's something like close to 70% of Americans think that they're kind of useful and necessary, so. Uh, but like I said, I had a, I have way more that I, we could talk about, but I really appreciate this. Um, I don't know if Scott has anything to end with, but, um, thank you, Chad, for, for suggesting this. Thank you, um, Ed, for coming on. I've been reading your stuff for a while, so it's really great to talk to you and, uh, we'll definitely have to, uh, get, get you back on again and kind of follow up. I've, uh, you know, see what's going on a year from now or whatever, but, uh, thanks so much. Really appreciate a great history lesson, great political lesson as well. So thank you. Thank yeah, much much
1: appreciated. Uh, folks, you've been listening to Professor Chad Pearson, Professor Ahmed White, who've been talking about capital's war on workers, radicalism and, and unions, etc. cetera. Um, if you enjoyed this show, check us out on social media, on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you're watching this on YouTube, hit the subscribe button. Uh, and if you wanna make a donation, go to greenandredpodcast.org and hit that support button or become a patron. At patreon.com backslash green red podcast. We'll talk to you all again soon. Everyone go out there and misbehave and make a lot of trouble.
3: I see they're lowering a right new coffin. I see they're letting down a rotten right new coffin way over in that union burying ground. And the new dirt's are falling. On a right new coffin The new dirts are falling On a right new coffin Way over In that union Burying ground Oh tell me who's that They're letting down, down Tell me who's that They're letting down, down Way